Let's go once more to God in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, our desire is that we would hear from you. That right now your spirit would make your voice heard through your word. And so we pray for his help in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is it that people desire affirmation so strongly? And what is it about the human heart that sometimes needs more than affirmation? We often want to be the best at whatever it is we value, or at least better than those around us. It's maybe most obvious in sports, because no one's satisfied with being a good team. You want to be on top. And the biggest game every year is when you take on the defending champs. So some of us are looking forward to the picnic next week. (laughs) But it's not just sports. The car we drive, the house we live in, the job we have, the clothes we wear. All these things can make us feel either inferior or superior to others. And that affects our desires. What is it about the human heart that so quickly makes comparisons to others and must be greater? Whatever it is, how does that kind of heart affect our relationship with a great God? How should the mission of the church and the relationships within her be different than what we see in the world. Our text this morning is a helpful correction to pride so that we can serve Christ who is above all. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 3, verse 22. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 943. 943. And if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Now, for context, remember that we first met John the Baptist back in chapter 1. God sent him to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's the one that God promised would come and deliver his people and reign over them as king. And John, in preparation for the Messiah coming, came baptizing people as a sign of repentance towards God. And he testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And so when Jesus shows up, John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. And they too end up testifying Jesus is the Messiah. Then in chapter 2, Jesus demonstrates that truth with miracles. And beginning in chapter 3, Jesus explains how people can see the kingdom of God. They must be born again by the Spirit, and put their faith in God's one and only Son. Well, in today's passage, John the Baptist is back, and he still has followers. And those guys are struggling with the increasing size of Jesus' ministry. John's response is pure gold for people who need to find our peace and joy in the greatness of God. Here's how we find peace and joy in the greatness of God, just like John. Humble yourself under the preeminence of Christ and exalt Him. Humble yourself under the preeminence of Christ. That is, his surpassing greatness. His supreme importance. His superiority in every way. And exalt him. If you're taking notes to help you grasp and apply the the main call of these verses, we're going to meet this call in three steps with the help of the text. First, gain a right perspective. 
This is in verses 22 through 29. Gain a right, or you might say heavenly, perspective. Second, humble yourself. That's verse 30. That's, the, that's a key verse. We'll deal with this on its own. Humble yourself. And third, exalt Christ. It's in verses 31 through 36. Exalt Christ. So first, humble yourself. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem. Because there was plenty of water there, people were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So here's the setup. These verses are the setup. We got Jesus, having left Jerusalem, is out in the countryside with his disciples, baptizing people. John's doing the same thing in the same region, because there was plenty of water there for baptizing people. But the main thing to see is that Jesus and John are doing the same thing in the same region. That's why this dispute arises in verse 25 about purification. People are seeing both guys baptized, which was a practice related to purification rites from the Old Covenant. And it seems like the question's probably over whose baptism is better or more effective, Jesus or John's? Now, we don't know for sure what the dispute is actually all about because the text quickly moves us on to the bigger issue. So I think, forget about the dispute. The text wants us to move on here. Clearly, John's disciples are envious of Jesus' greater success. Everyone's going to him. Some of John's disciples, like Andrew, have already left John to follow Jesus. But clearly, some of them can't bring themselves to do that. Their allegiance is with John. And now they're gripped by envy as Jesus gains a bigger following. So this potentially creates a a really big problem, depending on John's response here. Because everyone believes John's a prophet. What will it mean for Jesus' ministry if it suddenly becomes Jesus versus John? Well, his response is incredibly important and instructive. I mean, I, I just love this. I want to be humble and happy like John. Humble and happy like John. But to appreciate his response, let's first just put ourselves in his shoes and understand how hard this could have been for a person who's just like us. right? Because if you're John, you've made a ton of sacrifices at this point. You've left your home and family. You've accepted the difficult lifestyle of being a prophet out in the wilderness. You've put your life at great risk by publicly speaking against the immorality of the king. And you've made some very powerful enemies among your own people. And just when you started enjoying the peak of your success and crowds of people are coming out to hear from you, along comes a guy that no one knows, starts doing the same thing, and suddenly everyone goes to him. I think we can understand why John's disciples are a little bothered by what they see here. This probably feels a lot like the person at work who gets all the credit for all the hard work you did. The temptation in this moment is to respond negatively. And that temptation is pretty strong. At least for people like us. And John's success apparently matters a great deal to his disciples. You know, they they don't like his ministry looking inferior because they're attached to John. You know, his greatness is their greatness. So so wanting John to be great is, is, I assume, probably like someone's wanting to say, "I, I work for Google. But John has a heavenly perspective that makes him humble. 
verse 27. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I have said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. The first thing John does here is recognize God's sovereignty. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. John has the right perspective on every claim to success or talent or possession. It comes from God. From what you have or don't have, who you are or aren't, is rooted in the sovereignty of God, meaning God's in control of all things. Oftentimes our temptation is to look at the, the competition and see those who are much more successful than we are and think, well, they started off with a great advantage. They had life handed to them on a silver platter. But then if we're successful, that's because of our hard work and intelligence. When the truth is, to, from John's point of view, it doesn't matter. Because from heaven's perspective, regardless of whether or not that success comes by hard work or a silver platter, it's still happening under God's sovereignty. It can't happen apart from his providence. So John's response is a humble one. He doesn't compare the success of Jesus' ministry or, or his success on the basis of size. He first acknowledges God's sovereign will, and that helps him find peace in his own ministry. You can see it there in verse 28. He has no reason to be envious of the Messiah. That's not who I am. You know, I'm the messenger. God sent me ahead of him. I just, I love that. John knows who he is. And John knows who Jesus is. And that gives him great peace. It seems like it gives him great freedom to keep doing his ministry. John simply wants to be faithful with what heaven has given him. God gave him a lesser role, and he's content with that. He wants to be faithful in it. For John to wish that he were someone else, or for John to wish that God called him to serve in a different way, would simply be the wish of a covetous heart. I want what you gave them. I want to be who they are. Do you ever say something like that? Do you ever look at what others have, or the position in life they have, where they're at, and say, Why not me? Why am I here? Where are you prone to be discontent? Let me just ask you, is, is the lot in life that God has given you right now something that you can honestly say? However you want to glorify yourself, God, I'll rejoice in that. Because it's all about you. Can you say that in your living situation? Or your job? Your singleness? Or your marriage? your financial state, your skill set? Where are you prone to to compare yourself and your life to others and be discontent? Wherever that is, there's an opportunity right there to humble yourself under God's sovereignty and say, God, I'm good here if you'll glorify yourself. If you've got me right here for you, then I want to rejoice in that. Help me be faithful. If we can't say that, then we'll struggle struggle with envy towards others and bitterness towards God. And the fruit of that kind of heart is hatred and rebellion. And so rather than 
loving our neighbor and rejoicing with them, we'll be tempted to tear them down just to make ourselves feel better. We can even do this with the people we love the most. Right in our own homes. If you're here and you've got siblings, okay, kids, listen up. It's easy to compare yourselves to each other. After all, you're in the same family. It's just, it's just natural that you're going to compare yourself to your brother or sister. But remember, you're not in competition with your brother or sister. Your parents love you for who you are. And every parent will tell you that all their kids are different. And we love that. So don't be jealous of your brother or sister if they're better than you at something. And don't, don't brag if, if you're better than them. Just be happy for each other. And more importantly, pray for one another that God would use you and them. And that's what's most important to us parents is that you honor God with your life. And if you're here and you're in middle school or high school, it's especially important that you learn this lesson today. Because you're in a season of life that's all about, seems like, constantly comparing yourself or being compared to others. And if you're in college, the stage of life you've entered into is often characterized by competition. And not all competition is bad, but what it does in your heart could be. So look to John for your example here and be humble. He humbly accepts his God-given place in life and desires to be faithful. Pride blinds us to that heavenly perspective and leads us on this endless search for human praise. So we compare ourselves to others, needing to feel good about ourselves, but we don't find happiness because it's never enough. I mean, even when you're at the top, when everybody else is praising you for your greatness... You're now trying not to be surpassed. It's never enough. So humility gives us a right perspective in life, but it also comes with a right attitude. Look at verse 29 again. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. See, I think we can tell that John understood the perspective of his disciples right here. From their standpoint, what they're seeing is is kind of like a wedding ceremony where where the groom and the best man stand on the platform together, you know, in the same place, right next to each other, doing the same thing. Right? They look the same. They're both baptizing, both preaching repentance. And now the bride comes down the aisle, and suddenly she's standing with the other guy. And they're upset. And they're wondering, what's the best man to think about this? After all, he's the best man. She should be with him. And John's point is, listen, I've already told you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the groom. The the fact that people are flocking to him is evidence that Jesus is the groom. Because God comes from heaven God is giving him the bride. That's what John thinks about the bride being with the groom, but just as important is how he feels about it. You know, we've done a lot of weddings at this church, and I have yet to see any groomsmen protest where they stand. They're not up here jealous of all the attention that the groom is getting They're they're happy for their guy. Happy to serve him and make his day great. And in John's day, this was especially true for the one who served like a best man. Because beyond acting like a a wedding coordinator of kinds, he, he had one special duty. He was to guard the bridal chamber and make sure no false lovers came in. So he wouldn't open the door for anyone but the groom. And so in the dark of night, when he heard the groom's voice coming, he rejoiced because his job was complete. The bride and groom would come together. Well, it's the same for John as he sees Jesus take front and center stage with his bride. He rejoices greatly. 
The people are following Jesus. They're going to Him. This joy of mine is complete. It's not just that John knows it's right that Jesus' ministry is greater. He feels right about it. Now, as a father, I don't get jealous of my kids when people praise them. That makes me happy. It's actually better than a personal compliment. I, I, I don't think I will ever envy their success. I'll rejoice in it. Because I'm not in competition with my children. I love them. They have so much of my heart that their success will be my success. John isn't in competition with Jesus because it's never been about John. He is not before John. Jesus is preeminent in his heart. Jesus is God's Messiah. He's greater. John came to prepare the way for him. That's the heavenly perspective that makes John humble and happy. Content with where he is. He's pleased. It gives him pleasure to fade into the background and let everyone's attention become fixed on his Savior. In fact, that's the goal. That's the goal, which brings us to the next step in exalting Christ. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is a key verse in this passage. It's it's not necessarily one of those mountaintop truths for the soul. But this is like a mountaintop principle for the Christian life. This is incredibly important for living as a Christian. He must increase, but I must decrease. Both are fundamental to the ministry. Both are fundamental to bringing glory to Christ. So it's not like John's cool with a smaller ministry because he's on the verge of retirement. Like, look, fellas, we did our job. We can take it easy now. No, he's still out there baptizing. John's still on mission. But to complete it, it can't be about John. He has to. He has to fall into the background of a support role like a best man. And Jesus has to emerge into the fullness of his ministry in order to save sinners. The Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus said. So humility is the only option for success. That is a mountaintop principle for ministry and worship. Jesus must take center stage. Think back to last week in verse 14, where Jesus references the scene from Numbers 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what if in the midst of the people dying in the wilderness, the high priest stood next to Moses thinking, why does he get to lift up the bronze snake? I'm important too. Why can't people look to me? And suddenly, in a moment of jealous envy, he starts doing a dance and saying, Look at me! Look over here! Look at me! You know what happens? People die in their rebellion. That's what happens. And if you or me or any church starts making worship or ministry all about us or primarily about other people, then our foolish pride risks doing something very similar to that ridiculous scenario. Because at that point, it's eyes off Jesus, eyes on me. And you don't have to be a celebrity pastor to struggle with that. All it takes is standing in the pew and refusing to sing because the music doesn't do it for you. At that point, worship is more about you than Jesus. Or maybe it's just a refusal to serve in children's ministry because that's not your passion. Or it could be never sharing the gospel with others and lifting up Jesus because you're not sure what they'll think about you. 
He must increase, I must decrease, is a principle that fixes all of that. Humility is absolutely vital for glorifying God. Any ministry, including your own personal ministry to your spouse, to your children, to your friends or roommates, whether it's a ministry of counsel, music, service, or even the ministry of prayer, should be all about Jesus, not you. And when people give praise to God for the way that your ministry blessed them without mentioning you, that shouldn't affect your joy at all. Because it's not about you, but Jesus. But none of that happens apart from humility and a desire to glorify God above all else, including yourself. And we know that our sinful pride has always made that a struggle. It's a struggle in everything we do. In fact, competition has always plagued the church. I mean, we can see it right here in in our text. This is the seeds of it. But then, even after Jesus is resurrected and we have the Spirit, we can see it in the Corinthian church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Right there in a church that Paul planted, people are just trying to one-up each other in the same congregation. And after Paul leaves that church, so-called super-apostles move in, wanting to take over. In fact, even when Paul's in a Philippian jail, he tells us that people start preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, trying to cause Paul trouble. But listen to what Paul says. What does it matter? Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. Paul's not even in competition with his enemies when they preach Christ. He's rejoicing. Because it's not about him even in jail. It's about Jesus. So if he's not in competition even with his enemies over preaching the gospel. How can Christians... Or churches make it about themselves and compete with one another. If churches sound like or start thinking like John's disciples, comparing their ministries to one another, then they're in danger of kicking Jesus out of the church. It can easily become all about the program offered, the music. Who's there? What makes us different from other churches and no longer be supremely about Jesus? And if Jesus isn't preeminent in the church, how do we know if our success actually comes from the Spirit? Not that Christians can't disagree on things. I I think churches have good reasons for organizing themselves differently if According to how they read scripture, that can be important and significant. But if a church has the gospel, if if they're truly our brothers and sisters seeking to please the Lord, then even in those important differences, we want to pray for God's blessings and rejoice when we see it there. And that's why we pray for different churches here every week. It's why we prayed for three churches that are within walking distance to us on this particular morning. Our hearts should be such that if we're praying for revival and we see it break out in one of those other churches and not here, we should still rejoice. I love that our budget includes money to strengthen other churches and that it's been so evident on the faces of of people in this congregation that we're, we're glad to cut checks for other churches even when they're not like us. I love it because that's evidence of God's grace here. It means that that Jesus, I, I, I trust, is being lifted up. It's not about the name of Grace Harbor, but the name of Jesus. And as I think about this as a pastor, I'm just personally struck by the ministry of a guy named F.B. Meyer. 
He was a very capable preacher. He could have had a very large ministry. But his church was right down the street from Charles Spurgeon. So each week, for many years, he had to get used to seeing carriage after carriage after carriage pass by his church to go hear Charles Spurgeon. And when his ministry was almost done, he was invited to come to America and and preach by D.L. Moody. And at the same conference, G. Campbell Morgan was preaching. And so like a repeat of history, near the very end of his life, Meyer preached each night to dwindling crowds of people while Campbell Morgan preached to thousands. One night he went back very discouraged, but sought the Lord in prayer. And then they say that around Northfield, Massachusetts, you could see Meyer go from person to person, saying, Have you heard Campbell Morgan? My, how God's hand is upon him. You've got to hear Campbell Morgan. That's the heart of a humble servant who desires to see Christ exalted more than himself. He must increase. We, I, must decrease. And since that's the case, let's pray that God would protect every one of us from this kind of envy and pride in our own church. I mean, the temptation to compare ourselves to others and be envious or bitter or or even embarrassed is always present in our flesh. And so if you personally want help in fighting envy and jealousy among one another, open up the church directory and pray for one another. The 18th century Anglican priest William Law once said, It is impossible to harbor animosity and jealousy for one for whom you are praying. If someone is leaving you behind and you are becoming jealous and embittered, keep praying that he may have success in the very matter where he is awakening your envy. And whether he has helped or not, one thing is sure, that your own soul will be cleansed and ennobled. Humbly praying for one another will help you rejoice with one another because it will help you make it all about Christ. Whether it's in the ministry of the church or in the home, in the workplace, or among friends, part of living out the gospel together is dying to worldly comparisons. Because as a church, we know we're all sinners, loved by a holy God because of His grace. It's not because of what we've done. It's not because of who we are. What makes us acceptable to God and one another is Jesus alone. And so we we come into a community where everybody's accepted and loved on that basis and can know there's no need to impress. It's not about us. It's about Jesus and our life together with him. That's why having a solid word ministry is so important in the church. Because it's so important to our humility. God's word keeps us focused on Christ because God's word is all about him. And at the center of this word about Christ is the gospel itself that that saves us and shapes our lives. Again, we know we deserve God's judgment because we've all rebelled against him. But God in his amazing love for a sinful world sent his one and only son as a sacrificial lamb. And when he died on a cross, bearing our sins, he suffered under God's wrath in full, that we might be forgiven and counted righteous in God's sight, simply through trusting in him. Okay, Not earning it, but relying on his grace. You see, no one becomes a Christian apart from humility. You can't admit that you're a helpless sinner or put your faith in Christ or submit to his word apart from humility. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're, we're really glad you're here. And there may be different reasons that you struggle with belief. But I just want to challenge you. Pray for humility. Seek humility in your own life. And submit to yourself to the Lord. 
if we'll humble ourselves before God, then no one looks better than Jesus. And knowing who he is and what he's done for sinners, nothing will look more right or better to us than to lift him up and give him praise. Which brings us to the last part of John's response. Exalt Christ. Exalt Christ. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who's from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So John just lives out what he just shared and continues to do his job of lifting up Christ. And he declares all the reasons that Jesus is greater. And just notice how much of Jesus' preeminence in these verses is tied to the truth of God's word. Verse 31, Jesus is from above, and therefore he is above all others. He can't be compared with people with earthly origins. So when Jesus testifies about the kingdom of God, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. No one has a greater testimony of the truth about God than Jesus. In fact, John declares Jesus to be the preeminent source of truth, period. To accept Jesus' testimony is to affirm that God is true. Why is that? Because verse 34, the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit can only speak the truth, for God cannot lie. And Jesus has God's Spirit in a full and unrestricted way. So whereas God's Spirit spoke through the Old Testament prophets according to the measure of their assignment. There's no such limit to Jesus' ministry and the Spirit. They speak together as one. Jesus is much more than a prophet. So John's point is that if you're going to listen to anyone, if you're going to follow anyone's ministry, right? believe anyone, let it be Jesus. His words are fully trustworthy. They're God's words. Like like John opened in chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So Jesus isn't like a lot of teachers or leaders that we hear today. He's not speaking on truths that he's been taught by, by men or arrived at himself. And he's not simply responding to other people's thoughts. He came from above, from God, as God's Son, with God's Spirit, speaking God's words. There's no one else more qualified than Jesus to speak truth to the world. That's why you hear so much about expositional preaching in this church. Each week, we're just trying to expose ourselves to to the Spirit-inspired Word. We want to hear from God. And therefore, we're not trying to be too creative in our preaching. Meaning, we're not trying to come up with something new each week. In fact, you want to be careful with preaching that's too insightful. If you can't see where I'm seeing something in the text, then you are welcome to ask me, you know, to show my work. Just ask to see my work. I I should have an explanation from the text for any argument application or conclusion that I make in a sermon because I'm just an earthly person. Pastors are just earthly people. We don't come up with the truth. God is true. God is true and he's spoken to us by his spirit and through his son. So my job each week is to say nothing more or less than the text. I want to get the text right and then pin myself behind this pulpit and make sure everything that's said here between us 
It's based on this book between us. And I pray it keeps us hearing directly from him in his word. And that we'd humble ourselves under it and exalt Christ as greater through our humble obedience to it. If you ever feel like God is leading you to do something, but it disagrees with his word, that's not God's spirit speaking. It's not God's spirit you're feeling. You might strongly feel like God has brought this beautiful person into your life and and you've prayed about it and you just feel like the Spirit's telling you in this case it's okay. But listen, if that person doesn't follow Jesus or if that person isn't your spouse, it really doesn't matter how you feel. It's not the Spirit talking. It's your flesh. And so you need to commit right now to do the hard and humble work of submitting to good counsel if you want to exalt Christ with your life. Because here's what we see in Scripture. The Spirit speaks through His Word and with the church. In other words, if you're in a place where you're being guided by blind unbelief and the, or the, the pleasures of sin, then it's going to be the people with the Spirit and with God's word, by which you're going to more clearly hear from God. It's not going to be on your own, since we tend to be very biased towards our flesh. And our flesh can really get in the way there. So we need to hear from God's word through our brothers and sisters in the church who also have the spirit and aren't biased towards our flesh. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in competition with the glory of God. It would become about you. And that risks missing out on everything, including eternal life. Jesus isn't just the preeminent being or the preeminent source of truth, but he's the preeminent resource of all things. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus simply has what God has. Elsewhere in John, we learn that God has given Jesus responsibility for the judgment, chapter 5, verse 22. For possession of all believers, in chapter 10, verse 29. Authority over all people, chapter 17, verse 2. The name above all names, chapter 7, verse 11. And he has given his son the glory, in chapter 17, verse 22. If God has given Christ the name above all names and the glory. And so should we. And we do that by humbling ourselves before him through faith and repentance. And if we do, then the Father has also given the Son the authority to grant life. Eternal life in himself. That's chapter 5, verse 26. Which is why John sums up the whole chapter in this way. Verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The defining factor for whether or not someone experiences eternal life or death is faith. And the Gospel of John uses different verbs and pictures to help us understand the the breadth and depth of what it means to believe. It is not merely mental assent to something. Faith has already been described as receiving Jesus in chapter 1. Welcoming him as the Messiah and therefore following him. In this passage, faith or believing is about accepting his testimony and obeying his words. In fact, the word for rejecting the son is the word for disobey. So your, your translation might already put it that way, but you can find it in the footnote of most Bibles, including the church Bibles. But rejecting the Son, whose testimony is the Word of God, is refusing to live by the truth. Rejecting the Son is disobeying the Son. And one of the greatest things that we can ever do for God is to believe in His Son, because to believe is to obey, and Jesus says, to obey is to love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
To obey is to love. And so the worst thing we can do against the Father is to reject the Son. Those who do are not only rejecting the Son, but the Father's mercy. And they're leaving themselves exposed to God's judgment. They remain under the wrath of God. That's a real category of people. And some, no doubt, are in this room. And we need to understand this category because the reality must grip us, no matter who we are. Here's what we know from John chapter 3. Seeing the kingdom of God is having eternal life. It's it's present tense. We can have eternal life. We can know the Father's love like, like the Son knows His love. But to reject the Son and disobey the truth is to remain in our sin. And therefore to remain in our condemnation. And therefore to remain under the wrath of God. And so before we point our finger and say, bad God, you should love. Don't forget the very context of these verses from last week. God loves a rebellious world beyond all measure. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes has eternal life. But the son is rejected Because people love darkness. Because their deeds are evil. So they're already condemned. Or as it says here, the wrath of God remains on them. In his love, God has offered the free grace of his son. But people have said, no, sin is better than your son. Sex, on my terms, is preeminent in my life over Jesus. Sex is greater than Jesus. My money comes first. Money and what it can buy is better than Jesus. I live my way, my rules, my life. I am greater than Jesus. People find themselves in the category that they're in because that's where they believe they want to be. And they believe that if God is loving, he should be about that too. But then he would cease to be God at all. And it's foolish. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As we read together earlier in the service, 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Those who can't, who won't, humble themselves under God's mercy and the greatness of Jesus and let him be preeminent over all of their life, remain under the wrath of God and justly deserve the judgment coming against them. They will not see life, but wrath. And Revelation 6.16 tells us that it's something that is so terrifying that people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them and rocks to crush them in order to hide from the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. It's mind-boggling to me. It really just takes my breath away that so many people can hear this claim and essentially shrug their shoulders. I don't mean to to offend anyone by, by saying this, but that's just foolish based on the claim. It's just way too big of a claim to not investigate it. To not do something about it and be sure. This is not the kind of claim that you can say, ah, I doubt it. Can you prove there's no God? There's nothing after death. Did you descend from heaven and can tell us that with authority? Because Jesus claimed to have done that also. And those that were with him and were, were also willing to die for what they saw and heard. 
Their testimony and the evidence surrounding the, the empty tomb is very strong. So it's, it's foolish and, and quite prideful to read this claim regarding the wrath of God and shrug it off. Investigate this claim. This is something you want to be sure about. In fact, from the Bible standpoint, you can look around and already see the beginnings of God's judgment. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. The human heart is spiritually rebellious and it sets itself up against the glory of God. That's why our hearts want affirmation and more. It's because there's a great vacuum in our hearts by which we blindly and hopelessly seek self-exaltation. Precisely because we've rejected his glory. That's why John's response in these verses is so important and instructive. We need to humble ourselves and exalt Christ Believe his word. Trust in his death for sinners. And turn away from living for yourself. That's the kind of faith that brings us into union with God, safe from wrath. It's available to everyone. And if we do that, then not only will we bring glory to Christ, but listen, when the, when the great wedding day of the Lamb has come, we will actually enjoy being exalted with him as the bride. And in him, we'll rejoice forever. Let's pray. God, it is amazing That though you are the creator, and that we are the creatures, that Jesus is savior, and we are the sinners. That we don't need to compete with your glory, because we're so far from it. But that we will also share in your glory, because of our union with your son. And so God, we pray that with thankful hearts, glad hearts, we will humbly live for you and exalt him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.